It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 567 When Satellites Need a House Call. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. How, how are you? responding now to the coronavirus how are you changing your your work what's new so i i've worked purely from home for the past year i've worked largely from home my entire career but i normally travel 50 percent of the time and it turns out that all the time that i was putting into waiting for airplanes going to airplanes getting on airplanes leaving airplanes (laughs) there's a lot of dead time in there kidding and and all of that time is now getting channeled into gardening and making my house clean. I right. I have found You've objects. Very big house, very complicated. Yeah, I forgot I own stuff. I'm now finding now. Luckily, there's nothing that I'm finding that I've like repurchased. But I have found a whole bunch of things where I've been like, it would be really cool if I had one of these, and I swore I had one. Yeah. Well, I did. I did. And now I'm finding them. Right. So many places. Uh, it's, it's weird for me. I don't know where my time is going. Um, I, it's, you know, because for me, it's not much has changed because I wasn't oh, yeah. doing all that traveling. So, so the thing that's been different is I've felt less motivated to write episodes and do like original writing and more motivated to interview people. And so because I've mentioned this before, everybody's trapped at home. I've been able to get oh, yeah. all of these astronauts and astronomers and stuff and interview them. And so I've, I've normally I would do one live interview on my, my channel a week. Now I'm able to do like three, I could do two a day. If you know, there's so many amazing guests that are all trapped at home looking to communicate their science. And so that's the biggest thing for me is like, I, and I, again, I always feel nervous, like I'm, like I'm overwhelming people with with too much. And I and yet I we can see with Twitch that people can handle a tremendous yeah. amount of of especially intelligent, we hope, uh, educational content. So uh, thanks to everybody who is uh, putting up with me uh, having fascinating conversations with really interesting people who are trapped at home. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun, and, and you get to come along for the ride. And and we need to give a shout out to all the creators out there who don't have kids at home and are recognizing that they have this superpower where they can leverage their time to help others. I'm watching Dustin Gibson, our mm-hmm. friend yeah, been, at, at OPT. He's streaming like a media. Joining him periodically. Yeah. yeah, he's been putting out a a um Instagram live every day at uh, I think it's 7 p.m. Yeah. Eastern, and he's doing virtual star parties every night. Yep. And he's just like a, a beast. powerhouse yeah. of abilities. Yeah. Uh, you're doing more interviews. We've added stuff on CosmoQuest. Um, yeah. 
but all the rest of you are making us on CosmoQuest look sad because we're just like adding community coffee in the morning. So we're sitting on the internet drinking coffee. But you can see like there's just there's a bottomless demand for for yeah. watching this kind of stuff now, which is great. I mean, I, I it's, it feels great to see everybody is is it working to educate themselves, working to yes. learn new skills, working to learn new things. Like even though this sucks and we're trapped in our houses, people are putting this time to good use. And I hope that that even when the when the lockdown ends people will continue to be as hungry for educational content. Speaking of educational content, space is really far away. So when you send a satellite out into the void, that's pretty much the last you're going to be able to work on it. And if anything goes wrong, too bad you are out of satellite. But a new test has shown that it's possible to actually visit and fix a satellite in space. So maybe we don't have to throw them all away after all. All right, Pamela, so this is the... I think we need to, for people just to understand how far away, how remote, how difficult is it to actually go and attempt to repair a satellite right now? I mean, it's it, for the longest time, it was just thought it's impossible. Can't be done. Yeah. Don't bother. So, so the distance, just stating the number really doesn't help because space is roughly, if you want to get to the cool stuff in low Earth orbit, you're only going 300 miles away. Right. You hop in your car and you're there in a a couple of hours. (laughs) Exactly. We've all at one point or another probably been subjected to a 300 mile long car ride. So the distance isn't the big deal, but the straight up part is the issue and the how fast you have to get yourself going so that you don't come back down is an issue. So once you get to orbit, you don't have to just get there, though, if you want to do repairs. You have to get to space. You have to match the orbit of something else. And then you have to match the orbit near it so that it's not you're in the exact same orbit but on the other side of the planet. You can do that. It's just not useful. But you have to match the orbit in the right place at the right time and then grab the thing without harming you or it. Right. It's it's that part. Yeah. The high speed chase around the planet. Right. The 28,000 kilometers per hour trip around the planet is the part right. that, is, that is the tricky part. And that, I mean, just on a on a tangent, right? People always ask, like, why don't we just catch all these these satellites and 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 do something with them? Well, you know. It's like catching bullets. They're all moving in different directions at different speeds in different orbits. Each one is its own special individual, you know, delicate flower of a bullet moving at 28,000 kilometers per hour that has to be captured. And so up until this point, right, the, the idea has just been, yeah, okay, your satellite has broken down. Sucks to be you. Exactly. And and there's been a few exceptions. So the space shuttle, the good old grandpa's pickup truck of space flight, it was designed to haul things into space, track down the stuff that had a problem, pull it out of, well, not the back pasture, but the back orbit, bring it back down to Earth, fix things. But unfortunately, um, just six years after it really started doing its thing, in 1986, in January of 1986, we, we lost the Challenger on liftoff. And in the assessment of what went wrong that took us to that point of losing one of these few orbiters that we had, it was realized that Grandpa's pickup truck just didn't work quite as well as we liked, and it really wasn't as reliable as we hoped. So while it could carry stuff to space... 
it wasn't as safe to bring it back down. And so the decision was made that post post Challenger, we were no longer going to bring anything back to Earth. Right. But they still had that Canada arm Mm -hmm. and they still had the ability to grab things and fix things. And so there were some pretty amazing missions. Solar Max was documented by an IMAX movie that you should be able to find somewhere on the Internet. Um, There were some tremendous efforts made to grab and fix some satellites early on. And of course, the Hubble Space Telescope is the most famous of the things that it grabbed and fixed. And I mean... Before they actually did that, and so when you think about how Hubble was built, the plan was you launch Hubble from from a space shuttle, and then later on, a space shuttle flies up, they gobble up Hubble, bring it back to Earth, and then they repair it down on Earth. And so they never expected to try to do any of these repairs in space. It was all meant to be down in a nice lab on Earth where you had gravity and you had, um, you could use intricate tools and the and dexterity could, of your hand. Yeah, of the human hand in a in regular Earth atmosphere, etc. And then when they made this rule, they're like, okay, great, we've got a broken telescope that that it's that it's wearing down and it's not going to last any longer. But we have this rule that we can't bring these things back to Earth, so we have to fix them. So how did they, what, what did they do to be able to fix that incredible telescope? Well, the, the first thing they had to do was figure out how to MacGyver things so that they could lock on to these servicing panels and reach through them uh, in ways that weren't really meant to have people in spacesuits reaching through. So they created various adapters. They had to create new tools. And they, oh my goodness, practice, practice, practice. Because, well, when you're dealing with service panels in puffy armed spacesuits, there's always the potential to shred your arm on the service panel. Yeah. And then and expose yourself, your your atmosphere to space. Death. Yeah. Um. But after MacGyvering new connections, new tools, and new ways to get into things and practicing, practicing, practicing on physical duplicates here on Earth, they went out, they matched orbits with the Hubble, which is in a higher orbit than um, they really wanted to take the shuttle to after they realized its limitations. It's sort of like with Grandpa's pickup where you're like, "Mm, it's probably okay to go into town, but you don't want to drive it all the way into the city. Right. With the space shuttle, LEO, getting to Mir, getting to the International Space Station once that was built, those were fine. But Hubble is kind of at the top range of low Earth orbit. So they went to this higher orbit. They took that fabulous Canada arm. They matched velocities and they grabbed and they brought back and they held that Hubble over the cargo bay of the space shuttle. And they worked slowly and methodically, and they made the repairs. And one of the things that they they worked on doing over time was figuring out how to basically make hot swappable components so that over the evolution of the spacecraft, as they recognized this is how we're going to have to take care of Hubble, they made it so that each generation of astronauts kind of had a little easier of a go of it. But also they were able to attempt to replace more complicated and more ambitious portions yes. of the of the telescope. I mean, we always laugh about gyros and 
um, you know, various stabilizing servos, servos, etc. And of course, this was one of the big ones. When as these started to fail, Hubble lost its ability to point accurately, and the whole telescope wouldn't have been functional. And yet, they were able to swap out these fairly heavy machines designed to keep the spacecraft and install spare ones as well not to mention being able to replace the actual instruments and that i find that part really exciting that that you you take this really old telescope it's 30 years old pretty much like today um when we're recording this episode and yet they were able to put in modern more modern ccds more modern electronics to bring the capabilities of the telescope and keep it current and, and Hubble was designed with the idea that these components, just like the lens of a camera, would be things that you could take off and put back on. This, this is normal in telescope design. Here on Earth, all of our big scopes are designed so that they have multiple instruments. And as you switch from one style observing run to another, you swap out what instruments that you're using. And it's a non-trivial process. So they figured out how to do all of this during the design process. But where it got trickstery is these small screws. Yeah. yeah. Use sharp edges. Yeah. Because they plan to do it on Earth. Um, but, but they made it work. And they kept upgrading and upgrading and upgrading. And what, what is kind of poignant right now is as amazing as all the human spaceflight development that we're seeing is... There's nothing that we're developing that will currently allow humans to go out and grab and fix the Hubble one more time. Right. And and so our human option is is dead in the water. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like Solar Max is going to be able to happen again. Right now, if something happens to get close enough to the International Space Station, maybe you can grab it, but you're not going to run down a satellite with yeah. the ISS. Right. And so then the focus, I mean, satellites are still breaking. And, oh, yeah. And, and it's kind of tragic in the way that some of them break. I mean, you can have a satellite that is perfectly functional, doing a fantastic job, and it just happens to run out of fuel. Yes. And so, and we saw this with Spitzer. We saw this with... Um, uh, in the end, Kepler, even though Kepler died for because of reaction wheels, but also it ran out of fuel. And we've seen this happen again and again. So humans can't do the repair, but maybe robots can. And and this is the really exciting part. And we started really talking about this as early as the mid-80s. And uh, 88, 89, we already had template vehicles that were designed to go out and grab space junk. And uh, grabbing space junk is a less sensitive project because if you bang around the solar panel on something that you're planning to deorbit, it's okay. No one's upset. But this idea of going out and grabbing hold of something has been around since the 80s. The technology has been prototyped since the 80s. But we are finally starting to launch vehicles. And by we, in this case, I mean Northrop Grumman, (laughs) is finally starting to launch a vehicle that went out and it grabbed an Intelsat that was perfectly fine, but out of fuel. All of its hardware, all of its software, everything was still functional. It just needed a friend to give it a lift. 
And this is where Northrop Grumman Satellite really stepped up the game of what is possible. Yeah, and so this is a technology that's been that's been around for a while. They're called the um, the Mission Extension Vehicle, and this first one was MEV One. And the goal with these is for them to have additional power systems, additional propellant on board, its own reaction wheels, etc. It will bolt on to an existing satellite that's run out of that propellant and then be able to provide the the ability to reorient, the ability to put it back into the right orbit and to continue pointing it at wherever it's attempting to do to do its service. And so far, this first uh, attempt has seems to have worked well. It's given this satellite a new lease on life. And, and they were originally planning to only be docked together for about five years. This is happening up at geostationary altitudes, so significantly higher up beyond the reach of anything that human beings have been even considering working at. And... Uh, at geostationary orbits, it requires more energy to bring something down and burn it up in the atmosphere than it takes to boost it up into a higher parking orbit where it's not in danger of crashing into anything we like. So the plan originally was to dock together for about five years, then boost that Intelsat up to that parking orbit, the graveyard orbit, and leave it there. Well, right now, folks are so happy with what's going on that there's a good chance that the contract is going to be extended, assuming that Intelsat satellite continues to do its job well. And so based on this, NASA has actually been working on a whole set of technologies to attempt to maintain, refuel satellites in in orbit and there's actually a bunch of uh, gear attached to the outside of the international space station that they've been doing some experiments with refueling attempting to refuel test satellites and things like that so so what does the future hold what where you know i mean they are still bullets that you're trying to catch and so it's never going to be simple to to refuel a, a satellite but what does the future hold do you think for this well with with the International Space Station, this this is the robotic refueling mission. It uh, really started to shine about a year ago in March of 2019. And this is a case of Dexter, one of the Canadian robot arms, grabbing satellites that are able to get themselves within grabbing distance of the International Space Station. Again, the ISS is not going to chase stuff down. Yeah, yeah. But if you have a satellite that's still fairly functional, still has that ability to maneuver itself around, and it can get itself to the ISS, we now have, well, not a fully functional refueling station, but the starts of construction of that gas station on orbit that, well, a lot of folks that really hope the ISS would be able to do earlier on. And if we can test things at ISS and if we can get the Deep Space Gateway back on the drawing board for construction, I think it got yanked off last I looked. It's off the it's off the timeline. Artemis timeline. Yeah, it's off the Artemis timeline, but it hasn't been canceled. Okay. So um I mean if we can get Deep Space Gateway going as a refueling construction station, this means there is no place in orbit between here and the moon that we can't feasibly direct a spacecraft to and make repairs and refuel it mm -hmm. with the potential of getting a human being out there 
with their fingers and thumbs doing <laughs> right. the things that human beings do next. And with Norport Grumman's technology, we have the ability to reach things in all those intermediate orbits. Now, where it starts to get trickstery is when we start looking to the future and, well, what happens if, like, JWST doesn't open up all the way or something? Right, right. Yeah, it's, you know, whenever I do any episode about James Webb, people always want to ask, what if it doesn't work? And the chances of it not working are disturbingly high. high. It has it has dozens of different actuators that all have to move in concert. It has hundreds yeah of points that fold out. And when you think about like this, there's like a five layer mylar sun shield, all of the, the, the folding out of its main telescopic array, all of the mirrors, et cetera. It's tremendously complicated for the whole thing to come together properly. Just imagine if any one of those hinges fails and then the whole thing is non-functional and it's out at the, Earth, Sun, L2, Lagrange point, yeah. uh, never to be, you know, touched again. There are over 300 single points of failure. Yeah. We attempt to build spacecraft without single points of failure. It's, it's a goal. We usually don't succeed. But to have 300 single points of failure, and one of the things that, that, at least a couple of months ago they were working on, I don't know if they're still working on it, is it was realized that a whole bunch of the bolts they used in constructing JWST were not the correct bolts. Someone just right. grabbed the wrong yeah. bolts, delivered the wrong bolts. The bolts were not up to spec. Yeah. And they can't aluminum. take the JWST apart and replace all the bolts with the correct bolts. So they're trying to figure out what they can and what they need to actually do. These are the things that yeah. we're dealing with with this particular spacecraft that now holds a dark spot in my heart. Yeah. Now, the, I mean, there are no plans to repair James Webb, but the good news yeah. is uh, that the, right now, when when they set, when the satellite is actually taken to the launch site and it's bolted up on the top of its of its upper stage, it uses an industry standard docking ring to essentially clamp mm-hmm. on to the top stage of the of the rocket and it has uh it has ports for refueling and so they won't actually ref- they won't fuel up the spacecraft until it's just about to launch and so they'll attach these port these these fuel attachments onto it they'll fuel up James Webb and then they'll disconnect all that and then the whole thing will fly to space so in theory it's still going to have that docking ring it's still going to have these fuel ports on board and they're all fairly standard so in theory if this mission extension vehicle works well for now, maybe we'll see if we could see a future mission extension vehicle make the journey up to L2 and try to refuel James Webb. But there are no plans, so it's not impossible, but nobody is planning to do this, and definitely not with people. And and one of the frustrations that I have, one of the many frustrations that Just I have... Just one of them. ...is... JWST was originally slated to launch somewhere around 2011. And when they put this together with these completely standard docking clamps, standard fueling capabilities, the thought was that about the same time that JWST ended of life, about 20 years later, they should be able to take a robot up to take care of it. Well, it's been delayed a lot. (laughs) 
and our capacity to go to that particular orbit and accomplish that particular job is still about 20 years off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all I've got. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But then, of course, I mean, everyone talks about Starship. So who knows? Maybe there will be Starship will be capable of, of doing this kind of mission, although we've seen now three prototypes get destroyed. So, Well, that doesn't worry me so much as its kind of design is, is really not so much suited. It, it's not designed to attach an arm to it. And when it right. comes to repairing spacecraft, you really need to be able to grapple on and well, hug the thing you're trying to fix, or at least hold on to it so it can't escape. I'm sure the Canadians are working on a on a starship <laughs> uh, arm plan. So, I think the other really fascinating idea that will move this whole thing forward is just this idea of on orbit refueling, because right now all spacecraft are literally launched. Imagine you launch an, a, you know, you get your car and it's got the fuel in the fuel tank, and that's all you will ever have and when the fuel runs out in the fuel tank you throw the car out but in fact a lot of people have been working on this idea of of orbital refueling um the the starship mission to mars depends on them being able to launch these starships be able to refuel them in orbit and be able to send them so if you can refuel in space how does that change things if you can like have a spaceship run you know do its mission run out of fuel go get refilled what happens then? Well, it, it changes the planned obsolescence that we have for so many of these missions. Right now, we take the approach of this self-contained spacecraft has no hot swappable bits. And when it's done its job, it dies an almighty fiery death if it was in the right orbit or it just gets parked if it's in a different orbit. Yeah, or risks future <laughs> space missions. So so this means that when we're building things like the Landsats, which have mission after mission after mission in the series, when we build the GOES series, these are weather satellites that were up somewhere around whatever number the letter R corresponds to at this point. With these series of missions, instead of planning that as soon as we launch this mission, we're on to building the next spacecraft, you instead build them and you think about them differently. You think about them with exchangeable bits. So, And here I mean pieces, not like memory bits. So that uh, a spacecraft can essentially come up and grab out a console, replace it with a new camera, grab right. out a console, replace the servos. And, give, and top it up, build... give it a top up of fuel. Yeah. Exactly. And so now, instead of planned obsolescence of an entire spacecraft, you simply recognize that some things are going to get better with age. Cameras. Cameras are going to get better with yes. age. Some things will wear down. Servos, flywheels, all these spinny bits, they have a hard life. And if you can take those components that are destined to die and take those components that are destined to, well, get improved upon and build them in such a way that you can pop them out and stick in something new, that's going to save so much money as we just fundamentally change how we interact with our spacecraft. Yeah, it's interesting. One uh, uh, Lockheed Martin uh, was developing this program called ACES, and it was all about or- essentially orbital refuel- refueling. And so they were working out a system that would put a giant fuel 
depot in space. Mm-hmm. And they were willing to pay people to deliver just propellant to the depot. And yeah. so suddenly you, these things turn into commodities where you're like, oh, it's worth it's worth $2,000 per kilogram to deliver um to deliver hydrogen and oxygen fuel to this propellant depot we'll pay you if you can do it and then that that starts to create a lot of downstream opportunity for people who are running smaller companies to be able to develop ways of maybe harvesting some of that from a comet or an asteroid and being able to deliver it so that whole idea of of just the of refueling and refurbishment and reuse and accessing the the resources from around the solar system is going to really be critical for us to be able to move on to the next stage that's when you'll know i think that the real space age infrastructure is all starting to come together so when you see that and, gas and it's it's an old dream yeah. Uh, one one of the things that stabs me in the heart every time i think about it is is I'm one of those kids that went to space camp. No one would have ever guessed, I know. No. And and when when I went back in 88 when I was a middle schooler, I remember staring at the plans they had in in the Space and Rocket Center for the future space station freedom. This was before we went to the International Space Station designs yeah. with the intermediate mirror step. Yeah, the big one. The big one. Yeah. And part of it was they actually had a space-based, it was a good old-fashioned hangar. And the idea was there would be astronauts doing the one thing that astronauts can still do better than any robot. And that's repair stuff with their dexterous hands. Yeah, And I remember standing there staring at that and... um talking to one of the adult leaders. These were actually college kids. But when you're in middle school, they're really adult. And back then, they they would tell us that by the time we were old enough to be astronauts, all this stuff would be built. All of this would be constructed. And instead of being the pioneers, we just be the users. Right, yeah. And here I am now, the the age of a typical astronaut. We don't have any of that stuff. I feel gypped. Oh, I don't just want my soon. rocket car. I want my space gas station. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Give That's when you'll son. know. That's awesome, Pamela. Uh, so do you have any names for us this week? I, I do. So we are supported by so many of you who go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash astronomycast and become members of our community. And and we have seen a notable drop in the past couple of months with COVID. And we know that a lot of you are hurting. And I just want to say, don't feel bad. Mm. Take care of yourself first. We're still going to be here on the other side. We'll find a way to keep going. We always do. But for those of you who are still able, thank you for all that you do to keep us going. So I'd like to say thank you to Jordan Young, Biri Gowan, Ramji Anamatu, Andrew Palestra, Brian Cagle, David Trogue, the giant nothing, Laura Kettleson, Robert Palazma, Corey Davall, Paul Jarman, Les Howard, Joss Cunningham, Adam Annis Brown, Emily Patterson, the infinitesimal ripple in space time, Ed, Gordon Dewis, and Kjartan Sfari. Thank you. 
Thank you all for what you do. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.